In the shuffling madness, the locomotive breath, that the all-time loser headlong to his death. Unhost, I already did that. Unhost. Okay, I got to cancel. You feel the piston scraping, roll scraping off his brow. Thank God he saw the handles, cause the train won't stop going though it could slow down. Yeah, yeah. Donna. You hear the silence jumping. Angels as they fall. The woman and his best friend in bed and having fun. Oh, he's calling down the corridor on his hands and knees. So Charlie, he stole the handle and the train it won't stop going though it could slow down. Yeah, yeah. Food solo, you know how it goes. You know, you know Jethro Tull. You know Tull. You know about the flute solo. You know how it goes. You can sing it yourself. Do I sound okay? Does does it sound all right? I had problems yesterday. Apparently, it was a little tinny. I don't know what that is. Something with the internet. Someone asked. This is actually a very good question to start with. Somebody asked if I have trot brain. Am I a trot at the heart of it? And you know what? Having certainly after having read Deutscher's uh, biography of Trotsky, uh, I absolutely feel like. At a certain level, I have to take the claim because I really do feel like 
Trotsky is the lens that everyone looks back at history with, which is not in a position of action, but in a position of observation. And that is why he refused to ever really choose between contradictory uh, courses of action where one thing had to happen, but at the cost of something else and couldn't resolve them because uh, they were too detached from them. But I res- I, but the thing that paralyzes him is not so much lack of investment. He's very invested. It's that he is always seeking the transcendence of the conflict. He's always seeking the third pole that should historically be doing the work of resolving these uh, problems. That is why he took the riddle of how to be a convinced Marxist in Russia, which was a fucking uh, feudal backwater being integrated into capitalism, as as an essential, a a medieval country having uh, capitalism thrust on it. You still have to, like, if you are a Marxist and you believe, and Marxism is the belief that replaced Christianity at like it, it, within the, the the liberal cosmology that followed the death of God, as well it had to. Something has to fill that gap, and Marxism was good. But how do you live by its tenets, its its guiding principles? in a situation where you do not have a revolutionary role to play. You only know about this stuff because of what happened in Europe. The development you seek has to come through capitalism, not through a revolution from above, which it would have to be because of the unorganized nature of the peasant masses. The majority, it, cap, communism is about building a, a, a self-conscious class into a majority through conflict with capitalism, not through conflict with uh, the communist-directed industrial economy. And none of them, none of those Bolsheviks would have gone through with 1917 if they thought they would have had to have done that. They were assuming, because they were all listening to Trotsky, some uh, intervention in the form of a a European-led global revolution that would start in Germany. And there was a period there in 1918 specifically when those motherfuckers thought they were right. They thought it was all coming together. They were just, even though the whole country was falling apart and they were in the middle of a civil war and they were doing brutal violence, they felt like, oh my God, this shit's coming together because of the the German Revolution of 1918 and the like, the strikes in in, in uh, throughout German cities throughout 1919. But the tide rolled back, and then when Russia was defeated on the field of battle in the in the Soviet Polish War which hilariously you could blame on Stalin, and people have blamed on Stalin for not driving his forces directly towards Warsaw. Uh, When that tide rolled back, new conditions observed. 
And people had to decide, okay, what are we, what are we more committed to? The Marxist project, the socialist project, or my place in it? What are we more protective of? And that was the conflict that defined the question of how to deal with the peasantry. Because in my mind, Bukharin had the right of it. The bourgeois could not defend itself in 1917. It would have been overwhelmed by counter-revolution from the reactionary uh, feudal overlords. Would have happened. They were not there. The, the only part of the of the of the uh, political structure of, of the class structure in the cities uh, was and St. Petersburg specifically, was the fucking, uh, the Bolshevik party. And so, of course, the people who ended up winning that question about what to do with the peasants were those who said collectivize at the point of a gun because that was the way to save their position within this new uh, new world they made, and their conviction that they were right, they were historically vindicated, which was the thing they cared about more than anything. And Trotsky was paralyzed by the question. He wanted industrialization, but he did not want what it would have required. And so he sought the revolution. He was perpetually seeking the third thing that would, and according to Marxism, should eventually emerge. The fucking global revolution, which is like supposed to be on its way. And so that puts them in a position, the trot at heart, of being horrified uh, by the prospect of uh, actually holding power because they can only imagine holding power as... uh, moral, uh, like personal moral uh, uh, decrepitude, personal uh, um, violation. And so like the, the Trotskyist is a person who flees from power because they don't want the responsibilities it entails. Because they don't have, their conviction is of something that is not in the moment. They're not convinced. They're not convinced, but how could you ever be convinced? And so you will always flee from power. That's why you've got to split at every five minutes. Because you have to flee from power and its responsibilities. Even the responsibility of supporting other countries that oppose the United States in some abstract sense that doesn't even matter in your day-to-day life because you're in the imperial core and who the fuck cares what you have to say about another country? Well, how is this the most important thing in the world that you've weighed the heart of this foreign foreign uh, government against a feather and found it wanting? Like, it, there's a context, but... The the idea of of appealing to uh, the other to rise up 
instead of asserting power, is I say I would say the the default state of leftists in the West since the fall of the Soviet Union. Essentially, everybody's a Trotskyist once the Soviet Union ends, and the people who like cling crazily to supporting the Soviet Union in the history or current communist regimes, no matter what they do, like China. Uh, they're doing that because they have, uh, they're trying to deny their essential Trotskyism. They're trying to deny their uh, phobia of power because of the futility of it. And so you can hold off and hold a position where the only uh, political formation you can really support is one made up of people of perfectly like mind, because that's all it is. It's mind. There is no material interest binding any of these people, any of us. We are not members of a class, of, of, of a labor class in relationship to a means of production. We are consumers, first and foremost. And so we cannot imagine, we cannot conceive of power. And so its most abstract expression of violence is abhorrent to us because it's theoretical. And so everybody's a trot. Everybody is either embracing it and going ham sectarian style and denouncing every other, uh, every non-American regime that does anything that they wouldn't do in a platonic ideal of a fucking socialist system that has never, that could not exist in the current moment because of the persistence of capitalism. And so even as we come together in what we think is uh, an imitation of mass politics on the left, we're really just a bunch of trots bringing together our splinter groups until they start fracturing again. And that will persist until there is a genuinely um, materially fixed working class socialist movement in this country. Forget working class. Like I said, that's a meaningful phrase now. Just people organizing, not on, not in political parties, not in interest groups, not in uh, a third like um, pressure groups, but as workers. And building connections to other people that are like politically infused, but socially dense, that are forged by mutual experience and that define our action out of the clouds and into reality, where a lot of the, see, of the questions that seem paralyzing from the heights are clarified because a lot of them don't even fucking come up because we're all arguing about things that are theoretical. We're arguing about conditions of what would, who would I let in my movement? There is no movement. You are asking these questions to have these questions to ask. You are fleeing from power, the very prospect of it, which begins with submission, which begins with the submission of time and energy, submitting to others' will, and, and the decision of what to do with your time when you're not being compensated for it, when compensation is the sole mode of drive that we have built into our, uh, our, um, our social feedback. 
Like what we know, the only way we, uh, the market defines all, uh, in all actions that we then like associate with being productive. Like if we're not being paid for it, it doesn't feel like real, uh, we don't feel truly motivated to do it. That is the libertarian thesis, and it is what they try to turn us into. And we're pushing against that. We're swimming against upstream at every moment, trying to pull together in the face of that, because the work that needs to be done is not going to be remunerated or remunerated, however the fuck you say that word. It is not going to be uh, compensated for in the only currency that matters, currency. Because... Everyone's trying to keep their fucking head above water. Very few of us think of us ourselves as having time to spend not keeping a roof over our head when things are so goddamn scary. And precarity is all you feel. So it's a lot to ask people to do work that's not going to be immediately pleasurable or compensated for and what's going to make them do that is not an idea it is not a theory it is not a side uh, it is a shared interest with others that can then take that fire hose of, of selfishness and fear and direct it oh I don't have to just be anxious about this oh I don't have to just be angry because other people who know what I'm going through, who are not comp- who are not com- uh, who are not condescending to us from a cultural uh, height, which is very much what the online left is by definition. This is true of all cultural expressions. Like it doesn't mean that there isn't ne- it isn't necessary, and it doesn't mean that ideas that end up like percolating into grassroots work don't start there or aren't rather I should say communicated there, but there is a barrier there, especially since a lot of the things that these people talk about, me included, are not relevant to people's direct uh, strategic and tactical questions. Those strategic and tactical questions uh, are only answerable at, at the point of experience. We are all uniquely alienated. We do not have a shared language of alienation. That is perfect. And the word language is the most important part there. Because when we say we experience, we all get, we are all mutually alienated by capitalism, but we experience that alienation differently. It means we have different words to describe that feeling that we use for ourselves and among ourselves. And that means that we build and forge definitions of terms in our intimate relationships. Now, the, now the terms we're talking about are, are brought down from a cultural firmament. All the expressions and, and language of culture and politics that we share, we are having imposed on us, not from around our, uh, from those around us, but from this, this countercultural superstructure. But the definitions of those words, the inflections, the, the unspoken uh, shared emotional connotations of the words are forged uh, personally, are forged 
not on the internet. And we all still have some social life. And even if it's more impoverished than it used to, that's still where we get our definitions. And so the sterility of, of post-working class politics or post-class politics at all in America is that when we feel this alienation, we have this huge gap between what these words are used as currency in the culture and how, what, we, what we think the words mean. And that means that when we're picking and choosing the words to describe our exploitation and misery, we are uh, not reproducing a relationship uh, between like our material conditions uh, and uh, what we blame for it, but we're picking from this gumbo, this cosmic gumbo, if you will, of ideas that are coming from above and that don't relate to my direct experience because there is no working class counter hegemony to express cultural ideas. This is what Gramsci, this is essentially Gramsci's entire conception of how this works is that you, you do not get a, a uh, working class that can vie for power with capital through uh, just organizing uh, at the base. What happens is, is that through organizing on the base, you create cultural institutions that do not answer to capital, that are generated from uh, the collective will, the decisions of these people that are made outside of considerations of profit and compensation. They're doing this shit, as it were, for free. And it's the degree to which they will do things for free that gives them the power to act as a social organism against capitalism. I could draw this as a graph, I swear to God. And, the, and that used to be in this country, there was a working class that had a organized structural uh, pathways to power that gave it corresponding cultural influence and political influence in the form of its veto control over domestic policy in the Democratic Party. On, on, on many issues that were negotiated over the course of the, of the, cold, of the early Cold War. And that was generated by this connection, this, this thing that connected grassroots people working in factories with union organizations that then confederated and then had relationships to a political party that was infested at every level and, and staffed at every level with people moving through this, with capillary motion through this machine, and then getting into positions of authority within cultural creators and, and, and policies that were directly uh, associated with maintaining the structures of, uh, of working class expression. Now, the thing that a lot of people miss about this arrangement is, is that you don't get to a point I don't think, anyway, where capitalism is essentially culturally overwhelmed in this way, the way that the, the revisionists would imagine. The point of this, the, the, the point of creating this structure, or the point that, the, the, rather, I should say, this, the, the um, purpose this structure serves in generating revolutionary potential is that you have people who are self-aware as workers and there are more of them over time, and they make up a bigger percentage of the of the 
unorganized masses, so that when a crisis of capitalism comes that cannot be negotiated, that can no longer be negotiated, you are now negotiating terms of surrender, they will go to war. They will go to war. They will not sign terms of surrender without seeing how it goes on the battlefield. We've seen that time and again. There is a limit to the reform that any system can take. And then either uh, two things historically have happened. Either the ground collapses under the feet of the ruling class before they can declare war, like in the French Revolution, or uh, they declare war and usually honestly win. (laughs) Because the working class isn't ready. And I would argue that there were several points that called for the uh, that strategically called for the working class to be ready to go to war. And I would say that obviously the big one was 1914, the, the, but the 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 work of creating a transnational working class had not it did not happen. It, it needed longer. It needed longer. Who knows, under stable conditions, uh, how, how long it would have taken for uh, solidarity in Europe among internet, uh, working class parties across national lines to overcome nationalism. I think it would have happened eventually. But World War I happened, and they weren't strong enough to stop it or risk their positions. And so... And then, of course, after World War I and the, the Russian Revolution, you have another moment of conflict. After World War II is a huge moment when Stalin backed down. And you can say that he had to, but, again, he had to do it to save the Soviet Union. But that's not – the Soviet Union is a vessel. The Soviet Union is a fucking vessel. We're all vessels for this thing. We're not supposed to fucking uh, – care about our immediate uh, power, maintenance of power. But you could argue that the, the, the conditions meant we would have lost. And so we, we stood down. And the, that, that fight, by the way, extended to the United States, where there was a huge explosion of strikes immediately after World War II, uh, the biggest strike wave in American history at that point. Uh, and this was in conditions of, you know, relative prosperity uh, following the, the Great Depression. But all labor conflict had been muzzled during the war. Uh, and there had been the popular front with the Soviets. And so a lot of the most militant workers in America were convinced that they were getting ready for a push after the Soviet Nazis were defeated to confront capitalism in alliance with the Soviet Union, either overtly or uh you know, as sort of a situation where the United States and, and uh, uh, the Soviet Union agree to a sort of leveraged buyout of each other after World War II, and that they could coordinate that from below through their mobilization within labor unions. Uh, these are the CIO communists and such. And there was a huge, huge uh, strike wave. 
part of the strike wave involved Harry Truman nationalizing or trying to nationalize the steel industry until the Supreme Court told him no. But of course, unlike Jackson, uh, he obeyed that time. And that wave broke, and with it came a counter-reaction from capital in the form of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, which was used to root out the real motivated people who will do shit for free <laughs> uh, core of the labor movement and replacing it with people who were going to do way less for free. And with that, Taft-Hartley which is a stake in the heart of the labor movement, absent the, just as a as a self-preserving bureaucracy and 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 uh, and mechanism for patronage distribution, shorn of ideology, uh, just as part of like the the Oregon system of capitalism, it also killed that too. The Red Scare and Taft Hartley killed the body and soul of the uh, American labor movement. Of course, nobody knew it at the time. They thought, okay, we'll get them next time. But next time was the seventies. And at that point, the, the working class had been so thoroughly uh, castrated of any kind of ideology or um, um, political vitality that when it came time to re restructure uh, the, the deal, essentially, between uh, workers and capital that had been struck after World War II, there were no actual working class interests at the table. There were only bureaucrats. There were only bureaucrats of structures who were totally adhered to the state and had loyalty to the state, not to the working class. And we've been living in the aftermath of that ever since. And what that means is that there is no... There is no counter-hegemony. There is no left-wing counter-hegemony. There is a leftist strain within culture, but as part of the broader liberal capitalist realist milieu. A new left must be built through struggle. I think that's the first principle. That's the first principle I operate from. And people wonder, how the hell can get people get mad at the government and feel alienated from the government because they have to pay taxes and they feel like that's oppression or that the government tells them that they have to wear a seatbelt or, or uh, they have to get, wear a mask. That's oppression. But their boss can tell them, you know, how much time off they can have, when they can take a piss, uh, you know, what they can eat for lunch, whatever the hell. Uh, they can determine the, the, the vast majority of their life and they don't see them as their enemy. And it's because they're the ones who pay them. And in a culture that is purely and fully from the point of view of capital, that is co that is constructed from the Malachian eye of capital, at least the, head, the stuff that we all react to, the same way the parties concentrate this, and then we all react to it and... and, and, and uh, revolve around it. But the main, the big stuff that everybody sees, not the little stuff that microsects see, is hegemonically liberal. There's no counterculture, countercurrent within it. And so we can only operate as, as self-interested units. 
And that means that even though we're all experiencing capitalist exploitation and alienation more keenly every day, because the most direct expression of that is compensated for with money, we are paid for it, it doesn't feel that bad. And so, consequently, we vent our alienation at all, everything except the cause of it. Because the cause of it has been compensated for. And if it's not enough money, that's really your fault for not hustling hard enough, for not having gotten the right degree, for not standing up to your boss and asking for a raise. It's your fault you're not having enough money. They're there as like a godlike dispenser of value because value is determined in the market. Value is determined in the market. And we absorb that. And then we operate from those assumptions. And that colors our entire approach to politics, our entire conception of ourselves as citizens, as political subjects. And it means that class is washed away. Class is not perceptible in our expression. Our language can't pick it up. There was an article uh, in Harper's about the Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon uh, warehouse um, union drive. And they followed this young guy uh, who worked who worked as Amazon. Uh, he was a young African-American guy. Uh, he worked there. And he was a self-described, like, uh, entrepreneur. Like, he thought of working at Amazon as a stepping stone. And he thought that uh, he, he was going to end up selling to Amazon. He was going to have his own cosmetics company, and then he was going to be a partner of Amazon. He identified with Amazon. And if he didn't make money, he felt ashamed. If, he, if his thing wasn't going to succeed, he would have felt ashamed. He would have, because it's God. And so he didn't want a union, because the Amazon, Amazon told him. And the only people in the neighbor, in the, 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 the majority of people in the plant, in the factory that wanted, or the uh, fulfillment center that wanted a union were the old people who remember when unions, union jobs existed uh, in the steel industry there before it went away. Their kids don't have those memories. They don't have that experience of sharing grievances against the person giving you money. The person giving you money has their entire life been the dispenser of value in every element of society and in, in your fucking soul. And now that doesn't mean we're all doomed to it, but it's what you have to fight against. And you have to assume that we're in a condition of prostrate institutions. And since crisis is accelerating, <clears throat> I would say that crisis is accelerating pretty rapidly, even if it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, that the, the dispenser basically is going to disrupt our expectations enough to bring us sort of out of a trance, bring us more into the moment of our lives, bring us more urgently into 
connection with each other over these crisis conditions. What do we do? What do we do? At the end of the day, you can only ask the computer, what do we do so much? Because they don't know, because they're asked, they're, we're all just asking. And then our ask, our, our, us asking the question just bounces off each other. And then we pretend that that's an answer. You, gotta, you ask yourself, or you ask each other, and then you act. And again, this is not to blame anyone. Like one of the big things that makes it so hard to communicate because of this uh, is the emotional content of these terms. And in the absence of material interests, all politics as we experience it through media, social or otherwise, is moral. It's all moralizing. It's all moralizing. It can only be a moral question because there is no material dimension. As I said, that is all getting steamed off through self-loathing in the market. (coughs) And so if questions are moral questions, only, then holding positions is, um, uh, holding positions on anything is a moral act. Having opinions becomes the only moral act because it's the only public one. It's the only one that we enact. And so that means that these questions become totally colored and our ability to answer them throws, goes out the window because we're fucking defending our very self-conception as virtuous people, which is all we have. And the thing about Marxism, and this is forgotten because we just can't process it, is that Marx was a moral deflationist. Unlike all the other socialist leaders who were emerging and thinkers who were starting to to write opposed to capitalism in the mid-19th century, Marx did not object to capitalism on moral grounds. This is very important to understand. Marx was not saying that that the exploitation of capitalism was evil and the capitalists were evil because they did it, which is different than all the other uh, utopian socialists and Christian socialists and anarchists of the period defined it. To him, capitalists were acting out their historic role in disrupting the feudal order and creating the conditions for self-aware working class to emerge, which would then act in their collective self-interest, which would abolish bourgeois morality and would abolish all of the petty questions of, of uh, good and bad that consume us and consume our and ner- make us uh, neurotic with doubt about our, ourselves. Oh, uh, is it moral to steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? Well, nobody needs to feed. Nobody's, everybody gets bread. Everybody gets bread. You don't have to worry about it. All these, all these questions become meaningless, these questions that we fixate over, if we can push through. And so Marx was, more, Marx was morally deflationary. He wanted po- people to think of politics less about morality. He was a, is a, in opposed to Rousseau. He wanted it to be thought of 
not that way so that you could view every situation dispassionately so that you could view the contours before you with a clear fucking eye. And because we live in a post-class culture, we live in a post-class society in a real meaningful sense, not that there isn't class exploitation, but that it is no longer processed as such. And therefore, like the culture does not have within it the strands, the, 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 the expression of a working class culture. That's gone. And with it is anything other than a moral basis for politics. So all of us, even Marxists, even people who believe in their bones, that, that, that everything Marx said about, about the dialectic of history and materialism uh, is true, they still argue, even if they don't know it, on moral grounds and invest these questions with moral import. And, like, if you want to understand the culture war as it is and the liberal ratchet towards a, a more and more strident multiculturalism, the shit that the post-left always talks about as though it's a conspiracy between Raytheon and Bank of America, it is not. It is the subconscious, collective spasm of conscience of the urban liberal class. These are people who are in a system where they benefit from exploitation and misery, where they get to live lives of unalienated labor that is alienated by their guilt, that is motivated by their fucking guilt. And that guilt must be expurgated somehow. And that is where the, the, the moral... Uh, grandstanding and and uh, bidding up come from and moral inflation. And that means that more and more liberals as as conditions get worse, uh, as as anxiety and politicization of of culture become more and the, and the urge to change something becomes more felt by people, even if they can't articulate why, they have to express it. And, and if you feel, even if you are not, even if you are being exploited, even if you are a working, cl- a, per, a worker, even if you are precarious, you still feel guilty because you have conditioned yourself to view the world through a lens whereby the world uh, things aren't fair and it's capitalism's fault, but you're still benefiting from it in your mind because of the cultural, because uh, of your cultural expectations. It's not about any actual class position. It's your cultural expectations. And it is people almost, it is almost exclusively people who are, feel guilty, who are making the decisions about where the contours of the culture war should go, both uh, what politicians should say, uh, opinion makers online and social media, uh, people in uh, trying to make a, a job out of it, like fucking Robin D'Angelo and, and, and another fucking racial uh, water diviners, these fucking racial uh, rainmakers. 
And then even at the very top, you've got very guilty liberal billionaires because this is this this thing has absorbed everybody. It's declassed everybody, including the rich. The rich are being declassed. The rich are being lumpenized. But of course, capitalism doesn't need them to uh, be class oriented, to orient to for capitalism to work to their benefit, because it is a machine of extracting profit and pushing it upward. And even if the people who it's being given to are horrified by the machine and would like to stop it, they can't. And so they figure out explanations in their head for why they should still have all that money, even though it's being wrought by this horror. And the answer liberals come to is, well, you know, it's the racism. It's the racism. It's, it's white maleness. We got to defeat that, which is, of course, most like they're, they're, it's a white male paradigm. They're just trying to extract that part of themselves that feels guilty and then expurgate that guilt through uh, cathartic destruction of the other. And then on the right, conservatives think, oh, it's, uh, it's the blacks' fault. It's, uh, it's non-hierarchy's fault, basically. Because black people form in the United States this other, this racial other that is not fully within citizenship. And that is the, the escape valve for class conflict within the, the American polity. It always has been. That's why, fundamentally, Northern capitalism could not accede to the end of the uh, racial caste system in the South after the Civil War. It couldn't do it because it would have destabilized the, the uneasy detente that was currently existing between workers, smallholders, and capital. It might have tipped things in the direction of class war, class conflict, because, my God, what if the poor whites and the poor blacks get together after the Civil War? What if they, what if they uh, compare notes? They will be in an unbeatable position. They will, they will have leverage that will be undefeatable by, by the, sh- the, the, the shabby trappings of post-war American capitalism that had not yet turned into the mighty dynamo that would conquer the world. And so that racial caste system is at the basis of American capitalism. Not as the founder, the foundation, which is what, and I think that literally is where a lot of the confusion comes from, is once again, this is moralism creeping into objective questions. It morally feels right to think because you get to talk about it in these terms that are amenable to the discourse and amenable to politics, which is racial. We can monkey around with that stuff. We can't do anything about capitalism. We can monkey around with the order of of hierarchy and who gets to get in and who gets to go out. We can diversify our ruling class. We have that option. But we have to not be, uh, you know, moral. We have to be morally committed to that. Now, racism gets built in. It gets it gets deeper than any other experience. So, for a lot of right wingers, yeah, throughout history, they have been motivated in their mind by racism, even though that racism is built on top of this machine's need to perpetuate itself. And I think talking about it in those terms and saying that the capitalism came first is important. So that you can see the mechanisms in every moment that need to be pushed. You can see the real uh, uh, pressure points and not get caught in moral questions that aren't meant to be resolved, that exist to keep us perpetually 
batting at fucking yarn in a cage. So the war, the the the, the, the war between conservatives and liberals that's heating up now. The 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 genuine drop in investment in institutions of democracy is a civil war between America's liberals, essentially the boomer, going to war over Woodstock, over the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s. One end, the urban finance end of capitalism, in collision course, finally, with with the tail end, which was the formation of uh, local extraction economy-based capital formations in the slave south. And they've been banging, and they've been, uh, they've been in conflict. Their conflict has driven American politics. For a period, there was a working class element that became a tri, uh, that became a third uh, pole, and you had a sort of tripartite political structure for a minute there. Then that broke again, back to the two, back to the dynamic between these two parts of capital, petty and small, uh, urban and and uh, and rural bourgeois, basically. Now international and national bourgeois. They're having their partisan war that is becoming deeply charged. One part has completely at the grassroots given up on investing in any institutions or norms. And that goes through the entire organization. Meaning, yeah, they'll fucking cancel an election if they can. Of course they would. Because Democrats would let them. Because Democrats are even more comfortable. They believe themselves to be even more comfortable even more snug. The reason they're liberals, the reason that they're happy to uh, put the rainbow flag of things they believe on their yard and and and, uh, and endorse theoretical diversity is that they feel more secure in capitalism's bosom than the uh, the national bourgeois do. And again, we're talking about the people who actually make decisions and who things are generated around, not the regular schmucks who are just responding to them. They think they're comfortable. National bourgeois, they're all terrified. They've convinced themselves of the boogeyman because of their racism or, but all of that even is driven by the fact that they're being crushed. They are being crushed. They, they will be absorbed into the, the, uh, the international finance and they will personally either become cuckified rich people and therefore lose their identity or they're going to keep their, uh, keep their identity and become poor. And that is something they feel, and that makes them terrified, and all of their fears get manifested in things like race. They, they are afraid of being dominated. They see the way black people in this country are treated, and they imagine that in this new global world where they're on the bottom, they will be treated that way too. But at the lightly higher levels, at the levels of Hollywood, at the level of the fucking tenured academy, my God where people live in these tastefully segregated, uh, uh, integrated neighborhoods or gentrified neighborhoods or in inner ring suburbs where they get their diversity marked largely through the media. And therefore they don't have to have fear or their fear can be transmitted into uh, anxiety about the bad white people. They get to sublimate their racial anxiety onto the bad white people which is why they freak out about Trump. They're sublimating their, their anxiety to this other group, whereas the conservatives know exactly who they're afraid of because they're, 
they haven't inverted it. They haven't sublimated it. They're, they are operating out of their wild id, unlike the, the suppression of the superego fixated Democrats. And both of them are imagining a future that's going to get worse. They don't imagine anything better, but what they imagine is their enemy suffering. And so we are getting to a point of crisis. If things get much worse, I mean, if supply chain disruption really becomes a thing, if the fucking tap of Mountain Dew runs out, if the economy drops again, if there's another, if they try to do uh, mandatory vaccines, if uh, there's another attempt at a lockdown or a first attempt at a national lockdown, who knows? If there's a close election, who knows? This is all being generated by one class at war with itself. And because we're all experiencing politics as this, our categories get confused. Because most of the people on the left, they're on the same cultural side as the liberals. And they have overlapping values at a certain level. And so they feel the need to address those in their lives. And they do, but there's a conflict at the heart of that that can only be pierced by piercing the moral fog around all questions that, that envelops everything online. So I am all about demoralizing our historical analysis, demoralizing our opinions about shit, Taking away the sense of uh, of, of self worth that comes with watching something or listening to something or reading something or telling something or posting something. Now that you say that's rich coming from you, of course, but you know, hey, I'm also being compensated for this. Remember, so that's going to make it much easier for me. If you're not being compensated for this in anything other than like a psychic wage of moral virtue, if you remove that energy, if you remove that. Uh, force behind your engagement, things become clearer. You regain, you get something like a post-nut clarity, actually. You have nutted yourself of your, uh, your morals uh, backed up uh, anima, your, your, your repressed Reichian uh, orgone that you have been uh, sublimating into this mind battle. This fuck, you're putting this energy into a mind war. Blast it off. See, someone says if people logged off, no, nobody will listen to you. I've said this before, but nobody's logging off. Logging off is not a possibility because our social... I, there's no such thing as a person, right? We are a, a cloud of influences. We are so, and beyond the fact that we're made up of that we've encountered, we also cannot define ourselves by anything but comparison. So that means we are, we, we, we experience ourselves by experiencing the world. And that means experiencing other people, other, other people who compose a reality that we engage with and, and fit ourselves with it. And that is, that used to be in human, for most of human history, that was a direct experience the entire time of other people. 
over time, technology has taken over. Uh, the media sphere has increased. And our degree to which our notion of others comes from this uh, diffused technological sphere increases. Now, of course, this is good. I mean, in a dialectical historical sense, this is necessary. You have to create class consciousness across geography. And that requires being able to engage with ideas about personhood that extend throughout all of humanity. So that's necessary. But as it uh, increases, our sense of self becomes mediated. So if everyone logged off, it would leave you in the same life you lived. I mean, presuming you lived the same life with essentially a limb removed. You, will, you would find yourself unable to uh, navigate the world because of how much of your understanding of what the world is comes from this, this zone, this abstract zone. So we're all, we all have to do it to some extent. Now, I think some people could cut it off if they were going to change their life in a significant way. Like if you join a commune, you probably can log completely off. If you, re, if you are able to create a situation where you are able to replace, have that cut-off limb regrow in the form of a, a new, uh, 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 new relationship to others, If you start organizing, you can probably cut off completely. But, you know, well, but if you still are where you are, and most of us are, because we don't get to choose that, you know, we can try to direct the ship, but we can't just redirect. We cannot dictate terms immediately. We cannot take a moment of clarity and try to reshuffle the deck completely. We're still constrained, which is why... You can never talk about someone being in, you know, about, in a. you cannot talk about there being some like mute moment of, of a mute illumination where we all come together and we all have uh, an understanding because every moment we're being jostled away from that. And directing things differently takes time. So shrinking, you know, Reducing the size of it, reducing the vitalness of it as an organ of self-conception is, is laudable. But I stopped telling people to log off a while ago. It's more about reorienting your uh, emotional relationship to it. Because then that will dictate how much time you spend there. Because if you do not invest these questions with moral energy, they become a lot less interesting. You know what? If somebody's just literally pitched crypto, that's very funny. You know what? Blockchain. The beauty of this thing is, is that if this is true, if the the resistance to capitalism is within our like technological infrastructure is finally coming into fruition through the blockchain and crypto. If that's true, it's going to happen no matter what I think about it. I will not be contributing in any way because I don't know shit. I must focus. I must, I must emphasize it on this point on the, the question of technology. 
I mean, I don't know much about much, but I know shit about fuck about fucking technology. I understand the arguments for blockchain, the way that it could keep money from being, it would it'd be able to prevent capital flight uh, and mut and tax evasion and stuff. Like you know, I read that in Ministry for the Future. Uh, but you know, all the crypto currencies seem like speculative assets of an economy that's run out of profitable uh, investment opportunities. I mean. That definitely seems to have been the motive. Forget anything, oh, we're going to destabilize. Whatever libertarian crackpot notions undergirded its building, and I bet that was the motivation, because those people were motivated. They really believe that shit, because they have aligned their politics with their sense of self-interest. They think libertarianism will get them rich. So they'll work for free, because they've convinced themselves that they're gonna, uh, that this thing's going to work for them, even though for most of them it absolutely will not, and they will be destroyed, spiritually and uh, financially. But they really believe that shit. And they have the technological, those guys have technological specs, man. That, that's one place that the right has the left beat 12 ways to Sunday, is that those fucking nerds, those libertarian nerds, they love the uh, computers. And they know how they work. And the left is a bunch of fucking humanities graduates. Self-included. So, Whatever those guys were thinking, very quickly it became, first, a money laundering uh, device for avoiding taxes and buying things illegally, which is a tax issue at the end of the day and a currency issue. Uh, like they're basically, the, the government basically says, you can't, that money is no good for that thing. Uh, you can't buy that with this. And over time as a speculative asset. I mean, honestly, I'm wondering to what degree is Bitcoin still used to buy stuff considering how volatile it is, value is, and how much interest people have in it as a long-term investment opportunity and as a short-term, like, uh, shake-the-money-tree type thing. It just seems like the profit motive has dominated it completely. And that you would need that counterweight of people within it all pushing in the same direction out of not self-interest, not financial interest, I should say. And I don't see the structures within it to, uh, to encourage that. So once again, that's about as much thought as I have to put into it because it would be dumb of me to have a strong opinion on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or to spend much time talking about it. Because I'm, I know with the time I have on this earth, I'm not going to be learning about it, that's for sure. I do think that the amount of fucking energy it, it uses is monstrous. And I do think that the basic, the, the phenomenon of, of, of cryptocurrency and NFTs is the market looking for speculative assets where they cannot be found. Because even speculative profits are now largely being worked out of the system. Like long-term profits, which of course are always are, are been trending down since the '70s, are now such that you can't even get into a volatile market now. 
And so they're so the thing I can't get over with this shit is that they literally take economic growth, which is supposed to be uh, what investment creates. Like you invest money so that work is done, right? And that work then creates more value that is then profit that you get to take, right? That's the capitalist cycle. Now, that work is involves human labor, it involves technology, it involves natural resources of some kind, some sort of input, and it involves externalities in the form of uh, pollution uh, and energy used for the transaction. At the end of which you have a thing. In some way, in some respect, you have a thing that is then that then contributes to like the built economy and can then serve as the purpose for more growth. Bitcoin removes the productive part of the investment cycle, leaves the creation of energy, the way the use of energy and the ex, uh, the uh, exhaust of externalities in the form of uh, of these goddamn Bitcoin mining rigs using electricity and, and, and pumping carbon into the atmosphere without actually producing anything. That is just, that is the death, that's the death spiral, man. That is capitalism at the terminal point where the profit motive has outstripped all signals from the fucking uh, the system, all actual contact with it, have been stripped. There is no more human to animal to biome connection to the imperative for fucking ca- uh, 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 profit. And at the end of that, you have a situation where there's no more, this thing cannot uh, innovate anymore. This thing cannot be a progressive force. It has outlasted its historic purpose. Like I said, Marx didn't think capitalism was evil. He thought it was, and, it, and this is one of the, another place where moralism gets confused, is that at the time Marx was writing, capitalism was serving historical purpose. He thought that that purpose was coming to an end, and that's why he, was, that's why he predicted imminent revolution. Uh, but colonialism and the United States basically saved it. Colonial uh, domination and super exploitation of resources in the periphery saved capitalism in a way that Marx could not have predicted. We're now at the point where capitalism has fully exhausted its historic role, its progressive role of creating innovation, of concentrating capital, of creating cultural superstructures, knowledges of no, uh, ideas and uh, and institutional knowledge that could be used to direct a technological society towards social ends, to re- to take the machine and reprogram it, to turn the Terminator into the child protector. And that was the historic role of the working class was to was to do that was to change the programming, and they failed. And we live in the aftermath of that failure. And so now capitalism is deeply immoral in everything. You can't even say it's, it's progressive anymore. It does not even serve a historic purpose. It is just, because obviously it was also immoral, and Marx used 
very scornful language uh, to condemn the immorality of the ruling class, but they were also fulfilling a, a historic role. Now they are just evil, just pure evil. Consumption is evil if it has replaced uh, morality, which is which it has. And by morality, I mean a fully Im- consumption is a part of life, but it is like anything supposed to be fixed in a matrix with other parts of life, meaning other things, other stores of value. Let's put it that way. The value form in capitalism overwhelms eventually all values. And and exchange value is the only value. But those are, of course, the difference between those two things, which is an illusory fantasy. And if we've and we live in a culture and a society we live in a society that has reified that into a principle that dominates all others, to a way that is not sustainable. I mean, it's going to destroy the world. Not end life on Earth, probably, but destroy what it thinks it's creating. Destroy the thing that it's supposed to serve, which is human civilization. I mean, my God, you have this motherfucker going to space. You have this goblin saying thank you to the Amazon workers and customers for paying for this. As if there's any deal we could make with him that would make that, uh, that would mean we won. Like, you can talk all day about, oh, I got 500 socks in, uh, I clicked a button, I got 500 socks to my house in two hours. Okay, congratulations. You got that convenience. You got that consumption, but what did you give up for it? And what you gave up for is every other part of humanity and your own ability to determine your life, like at a basic level. You've given it yourself over to a machine. We all have. And we get to watch this guy go, hey, I'm going to pretend to go to space. I'm going to pretend to go to space. I'm going to do something... That isn't even fucking space travel. Something the Russians figured out in the fucking fifties uh, with two k- tin cans tied together. Nope, sorry. Someone on Twitter pointed this out, and I think it's it's true. Is that he clearly sat down with his his space dudes and said, "Okay, I want to go to space. How can I do that in a way that doesn't require me to train and isn't going to kill me?" And they said, "We'll just take you up and like show you the curvature of the Earth." It's just, a, it's just a big boy goes on a fucking plane ride. And then he comes down and says, we're going to take all of the factories and put them in outer space, which is such an, should be an, in such an insult to the mind of anyone. How anyone can hear them say, someone say that and not instantly be disenchanted from capitalism astounds me. This man has more money than anybody in the, on earth. He directly benefits from the exploitation of people 
and their labor at every point in a global supply chain of misery. By any, any system of value, that is wrong unless he deserves it, and that is capitalist morality. He is there because he deserves it. How could he deserve it? Now, the old days, hierarchy was upheld by saying he deserves it because God put him there. Shut up. Liberalism came along. Rationalism came along. The Enlightenment, science, it became harder to convince people of that. And so that became, they're there because of a meritocratic process that put them there as they should. And that was the liberal revolution, to take the industrial revolution and replace orders of superstition with rational orders of merit. That was the French Revolution. That was Napoleon marching across Europe. That was the 19th century, was the imposition of those ideas that by the 20th century were hegemonic and then eventually overwhelmed the world. Hegemonic in the West, I should say. So now you have a situation where we have this so-called meritocracy that, of course, a lot of people don't believe in. Some people say, leftists say, it's not a meritocracy because meritocracy is fake. But liberals will say, no, meritocracy is just not perfectly implemented. And the, and the multicultural liberal project is the attempt to impose a perfect meritocracy through affirmative action, through redistribution, necessary to get to that point. So according to liberals, we are going we are more meritocratic than they used to be, but we're not meritocratic enough. The important thing is that we're meritocratic enough so that every individual liberal deserves to be where they are in the system if they're benefiting from it, if they feel like they're benefiting from it. That is the that's the neat coincidence. Is that, yes, there's a lot of white people who succeed but shouldn't. A lot of white men, am I right, ladies, who shouldn't, but not me. Now, there are a lot of liberals, though, who say, uh, and no, and it's not that racist, uh, calm down. But there are also conservatives who say, who aren't full race warriors, who do think that, you know what, even though there's affirmative action and, and, and the media and stuff, we still basically have a fair system of capitalism. So, like I would say, the center, the center, the vital center of capitalist belief in this country says we have a system that is meritocratic enough that the richest man on earth should deserve that through some sort of genius, some sort of uh, ability equal to that amount of money. And that motherfucker came back from space and said, "We got to shoot all the factories into orbit." Now, either. He really believes that. And if he really believes that, he is a fucking moron. And he does not deserve to be up there. Or he's lying to you. Which means that he is not a uh, meritocrat, but a fraud. Either way, he should not be there. 
And certainly the fact that he believe he thinks you're going to believe him is the should be the ultimate insult. More than anything. The fact that he fucking thinks that some portion of you are going to believe him, either agree with him or even think he thinks that. He does not have any uh, respect, that's for sure. But yeah, no, nobody who says something like that after blowing all that money and then telling people, yeah, this is your money I'm blowing, goes up, does that, comes back, has that result, can possibly say that capitalism has not failed. It has failed. In that, it has fulfilled its historical fucking destiny and is still hanging around. We have to rebuild some sort of workers' resistance to it that can contest for power as it declines, which it is. I was supposed to talk about Black Jacobins today, but I ended up going off on a bit of a tangent. Uh, you know what? Next week, I'll do... Uh, I might just do the whole rest of the book next week. Because the thing is, it's much more—it's—it's uh, it's much less detail-oriented than um, than the other books we've done. The historical ones, anyway, like uh, Reconstruction. It's—it's it's much more like sweeping narrative. So, uh, how about for next week? I'll just read the rest of it. All right, I hope some of that made sense. Bye-bye.